0: The rest of us, if you've got your Bibles or your iPhone or whatever, uh, turn to um, Hebrews chapter 11. A number of years ago, um, when we were living down in Virginia, one of our relatives was not too far away and they were involved in one of those pyramid companies probably heard things of that nature. And, um, and they were going to get really wealthy because they were. At least that was their plan. And you'd walk into their home, and all over their walls were these pictures. There'd be pictures of money, there was pictures of houses that they were wishing for, and there was pictures of places that they had, were hoping to travel to. And not that any of those things are wrong, but that was, that was their way of being motivated to do stuff in their company that they didn't really want to do. And I just share that because I think when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a, there's a sense that this, this, this Hebrews 11 sits at the heart of the section of Hebrews that is the practical section. So up until about chapter 10, verse 19, you had the writer of Hebrews just literally unpacking the truth of the gospel and how this um, should affect and, and help these people who are thinking of turning back. And now in 10, verse 19, and following, he's going to say, okay, now in light of that, this is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to do. These are how you, This is how you should think, etc." And Hebrews 11 is kind of put in the heart of that section. And, and he's giving us examples of, of how we ought to act in light of the truth that we, so that we might persevere. Okay? Maybe the original uh, picture will be, be made more clear as we walk through this. Let me recap. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses. Uh, we looked at uh, several characters. One was Abel, then Enoch, then Noah, then uh, Abraham, and Sarah. Today, as Quiana read, we had a whole list of names of individuals from the Old Testament who lived by faith. We're not going to go through every one of them. But it started, the chapter started with a partial definition. I don't think it's an exhaustive definition of faith, but it's certainly a partial definition. And if you recall, verse 1, now faith is the assurance, or I said some translations, the substance of things hoped for. The conviction, or some translations say the evidence of things not yet seen. And then he moves into several examples of faith. so we just simply defined it last week as uh, faith is, is literally believing in the God and His promises and then acting upon them. And, and, and as we do that, the, the, the creative power of God's Word is ignited. And I, and I say that really carefully, but that's what seems to be happening as we look at each of these passages. They live by faith. This morning, the examples continue, but because of time, I just want to zero in on Abraham. He's the main character in our text. Okay? You see him starting last week in verse 8, going all the way down to verse 21. So I want to zero in on Abraham, and as we do that this morning... I would like us to see how he stirred his faith. Or may I put it this way? How he motivated his obedience. How he put the pictures on the wall. Okay? Now, Scripture is quite clear that faith is a gift from God. I want to start there. I want us to look at some texts because I think it's important for me to say that in light of what we're going to say. So, for example, you can just sit and listen, write these verses down, think about them this week. Romans 12, verse 3 says, "For For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned So faith, at least some faith, is a gift from God. Ephesians. Typically, this is where we go to. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, there's a debate whether he's talking about God's grace or God's faith, or both. I think it's both. But faith is a gift from God. First Timothy. We read these words. Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in verse chapter 1, verse 13. Um, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Apostle Paul says, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul. Talking about himself, he says, I was acting in unbelief, and God showered his grace upon me. I was acting ignorantly. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. 2 Thessalonians. We read these words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And he's thanking God for the love that he sees between them and the faith that is growing. Why would he thank God if, unless it was God who gave them? You can think of our Lord's words in Luke chapter 22 where he's talking to Peter in verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you have these pictures that our faith is actually a gift from God. I don't quite understand that other than as I read the text, I just got to be honest, that's what the text is suggesting and saying. And yet when we get to today's passage, it seems that Scripture is also clear that we have a responsibility to stir up that faith or to fan it into flames. So Monday and Tuesday morning, I guess it was Monday night, I was at a a prayer retreat with some other pastors. Um, it 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 was a good short, kind of too short, but it was good. And that afternoon, they have a library at King's Fold and I have the library all to myself. Somebody needs to go in there and change some of those books. That's just my opinion. But, but they have a fireplace, and I love fireplaces, wood fireplaces. And I got the fire going, and it was just roaring, but then it starts to die down. And you have to stir things up, and you've got to fan it into flame again. And, and I think there's something similar going on in our text today. Let's go back to Hebrews 11. Let's go back to verse 8, which we looked at last week. And let's remind ourselves of what he said. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So God says you're to go. It doesn't tell him where he's supposed to go. What I didn't say last week that I think is important for today's message is Abraham was born in the city of Ur, U R. The city of Ur was probably the hub, the uh, the the powerhouse, the the center of that day and age, 2100 B.C., 2000 B.C., somewhere in there. Archaeologists, uh, historians uh, tell us it was. And a conservative estimation, a city of 300,000 people. So we're talking 4,000 years ago. It was a magnificent city. It was a city of uh, great buildings. In fact, uh, uh, some would suggest that Ur is actually means uh, brick kiln. So it was a place where they could... They could it, was, it was built out of bricks and stones... It was a city that had running water. It had impressive irrigation. Uh, There's signs that they had indoor plumbing. A city of incredible wealth, incredible power. Lots of art. That was his home. That's where he was to leave. And we're told from the book of Hebrews, and if we go through the book of Genesis, we realize that he lived in tents, so did his son, so did his grandchildren. He becomes a wanderer. Verse 13 of our text today, he says that he acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. If you go to verse 38... It says, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. He's speaking of a number of the different individuals, but Abraham would have fit in that category, a wanderer. And then last week we looked at verse 10. Verse 10 says that he left, he was uh, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs. Then in verse 10 he says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Peter O'Brien takes that four and says, it's, you can literally say it's for this reason. Or this is the how he decided to live in tents. This is how he wandered. This is how he left home. How did he do it? Looking forward to... Waiting expectantly. Go back to chapter 10, verse 13. We have the exact same phrase in the, in both our language and in the Greek language. Verse 13, waiting from that time. He's talking there about Jesus, where Jesus in verse 12 offered a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and now he's waiting expectantly until all his enemies shall be made a footstool. Do you think there's any doubt in Jesus' mind that that's going to happen? Let me ask that question again. Do you think there's any doubt in Jesus' mind that someday all his enemies will be at his footstool? No. He's waiting expectantly. He's, he's, he believes it's going to happen. He's waiting. There's an anxiety. There's not an anxiety in a bad way, but he can't wait. He's longing for same word that we see in chapter 11 verse 10 where the, we're told Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations now as we go through scripture as we go through scripture it begins a, becomes apparent that there's different themes that run through the, the entire book and a lot of those themes find their seeds in the early books of the Bible in the first chapters particularly chapter 1, 2 and 3 this idea of city, I think, starts back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and ends on a high note in Revelation 21 and 22 where it describes the new Jerusalem, a streets paved with gold, a place where there's no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, none of that. But it starts at least in seed form already back in Genesis chapter 3. Listen here. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve failed, sinned, rebelled against God, however you want to put it. We're told in Revelation three twenty in Genesis three twenty four, he, God, drove out the man and and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword, and he turned every every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And so literally the idea is God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of the east entrance, and they were east of Eden. Next chapter Genesis 4, really sad point. Their children, Cain and Abel. We talked about Abel last last week. Cain gets angry, kills Abel. And God in his punishment for Abel says this. He says in verse 12 of chapter 4. When you, Cain, work the ground, it shall no longer yield to To you, its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so he says to Cain, You're going to be a wanderer. He then says, If you go down to verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Same expression. Out of the presence of God, east of Eden. He's a wanderer. And then the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch means place. And I think that that, that Cain, although a wanderer and a fugitive his, his soul long for a place, a home, a city. And so he builds a city east of Eden outside of the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 12, then, we're introduced to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now understand this about Ur. Ur was a people that worshipped the moon. We're told in Joshua chapter 24 that Abram and his family, his descendants, worshipped other gods. God speaks to Abram in this great city and calls him out of this city to wander. But as Hebrews chapter 12 says, with the incredible hope of another city. A city that has a foundation, has an architect, whose God... Whose, whose architect is none other than God. And I think as we look at the book of Hebrews at, at this little section, our, our writer is telling us that that the the that that as Abram goes, he has this picture, maybe not on the wall of his tent, but tattooed to his soul. longing for a city. Now look at the section that Quiana read for us now. Let's look at verse 15. Our author here is talking about Abram. He's talking about Isaac. He's talking about Jacob. He's talking about Sarah. And in verse 15 he says this, if, if, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, if they had been thinking of Ur, that great city of 300,000 people, they would have had the opportunity to return. Our author's point is that that's not what was on their mind. What was on their mind? Look at verse 13. These Abram and Sarah they all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth what was on their mind they acknowledged that they were exiles strangers that this was not their home that they were wandering east of Eden and they were longing for a better place Take a look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They weren't looking for a promised land in the sense of they weren't looking simply for uh, the promised land that they could see with their eyes. But they were looking for a heavenly country. Did you catch that word? Not only were they looking for it, but they were desiring it that spoke to the affections. So on the wall of their tent was not, was not a stack of money and it was not a, 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 a beautiful home and a big, nice car and, and it wasn't those things. On the wall of their tent or probably more importantly on, the, on their mind and on their heart was tattooed this place where God is. This city, this country, this heavenly place, and that's what they long for. Our author was saying what drove Abraham to obey God was this longing for a better place. I think our author is trying to tell us that, that Abraham stirred his faith A faith that was a gift, but he stirred it. He ignited it. He he allowed it to to, to grow and flourish by what he was thinking and what he was desiring. Let me ask you a question. 24 hours before you walked in the door of this church, just stop and think about those 24 hours. What went on in your mind? What were the things you were thinking about? What were the things you were dreaming about, longing for? What were they? In the last twenty four hours, can you actually put your finger on a moment and a time and say, you know what? There was this moment I was just like, I couldn't wait to be in the presence of my God. I longed to be with Him. Or was on the pictures of the wall of your tent, was it things such as, Oh, I can't wait to have that. Oh, if I only could have this, if this this would make me happy. Isn't that how our world works? Isn't that how advertising works? It makes it it wants us to think about things, whether it's money or sex or whatever. It wants us to long after the things of Eden. But, but, but Abraham, he he longed, he desired, he thought about. Well, I mean, that's what the text is saying. A better country, a heavenly one. A city who's who's I love, the, let me read it. A city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so as you stop and you go, my last 24 hours, if there was a moment a time, praise God, my question then is, whether there was or there wasn't, my next question is, what will you do in the next 24 hours? What practice, what will you change? How will you motivate? How will you move yourself to stop and go, I am going to think about a better place? If you call yourself a believer, a follower of Christ, if you call yourself a person of faith, then this is our responsibility. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. Jesus, I'm going to cheat a little bit. and Matt's going to pick up in chapter 12, Lord willing, next week. But I'm going to peek a little bit over there because... Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? He longed for the joy that was to come. How do we persevere in this broken world? How do we hang on? How do we we hold fast to our faith? We long for, we desire, we think about a heavenly city. Paul put it this way. Just in case you think, okay, well, maybe it's just Hebrews that's saying this. Maybe Elroy's just saying this. Paul said it. If then you have been raised with Christ, if that's you, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you also will appear with Him in glory. I didn't say that. Paul said that. And isn't that what our writer says Abraham did? What will you do differently tomorrow? How will you reorder your day? How will you change your practices so that this becomes reality in your life? Now, very quickly, let me just leave you with one other thought. There's so much left in this text that we're not going to be able to do justice to, but one other thought, and I hope it will warm your heart, your affections. Did you notice that list when Quiana was reading in verse 32? And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. He sounds like Elra. He's he's got this sermon. He's got about 27 more sermons and he's got no more time. For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Who were these guys, Gideon? Gideon? Oh, he believed God, but if you remember the story, he had incredible fear. God, I think, uh, graciously and maybe, maybe with a little bit of laughter, said, "Called him mighty warrior," as he was hiding. I like Gideon because he sounds like more like Elroy. Then there's David. He believed in God. He he by faith we're told, albeit. Don't we recall him being a murderer and an adulterer? And yet, they're commended. They're approved by God. It's as if God smiles upon them, not because of their great works, not because, nor are they even remembered for their failures. But they were, they were approved, they were commended, because they were men of faith. They heard the Lord, and ever so feebly they obeyed Him. And I think that's how we come to the table today. recognize that we're wanderers. We recognize that we're sinners. We've fallen short. We recognize that we are foreigners and we actually long for a greater city. And, and we do. We believe that this world will not ultimately satisfy us. What we believe Will really satisfy us is Jesus, the bread of life. As we come to the table this morning, we come here by faith. We say, Lord, I'm not good enough to get to heaven. My works fall short. Lord, I... Uh, um, I want to go to heaven. I want to be in your presence. I want to know you. And I can only get there through you. And when we come to the table and we take of the bread, we go, I I like the stuff of this world, but I know that ain't going to satisfy. Forget my language. Forgive my language. But Jesus, only you will. And so as we wander here to the east of Eden, do we long for, do we think about, do we by faith believe that there's only one city to strive for? Let's pray. Lord, I love you. But I understand that my love for you falls short because I can think of Huge sections of my days, my weeks, where my longing for you is not what it ought to be. My thinking upon you is not where it should be at. My desire for the things of heaven are so shallow. And so, Lord, would you graciously forgive me, forgive us. Father, I pray that even as we come to the table, that we would come by faith and go, and just again be reminded that only you will satisfy us. May we be men and women like Abram and Sarah, who are commended and approved by you because of our faith. In you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.